Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we're going to dig into Governor Gavin Newsom's ambitious proposal to create a new court system aimed at helping stabilize and treat people with severe mental illness. That's right. This is a very controversial plan. And our guest today is one of the Democratic state lawmakers shepherding it through the legislature. State Senator Susan Talamantes Eggman of Stockton is here with us. And we are going to bring break format a little bit, bring her, bring her right, right in. in to talk about some of those contentious hearings this week over the care court and some other breaking news. Senator Eggman, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be at The Breakdown. And I assume you're talking to us from Sacramento? I am sitting in my Sacramento office, just well, completed a budget hearing. That's uh, that's why we like these legislative <laughs> episodes. So before we get to care courts, which is obviously incredibly important and complicated, um, you and the other Democratic uh, members of the state Senate rolled out a sort of counter proposal today. Um, this is a counter to what Governor Gavin Newsom had talked about, which is to give rebates um, in the form uh, uh, to taxpayers who drive cars in California to try to, you know, deal with those high gas prices. Um, y'all are taking a sort of more holistic approach, proposing $200 taxpayer rebates um, for folks that make less than $250,000 a year, extra money for kids, subsidies for small businesses who are facing some increased unemployment insurance cost, and um, even more cash assistance for folks with disabilities on welfare. Why is this a better idea than what Newsom wanted to do? We think it's much more targeted. So we know in California, there are, um, I mean, we still have huge disparities, right? You, as you start off saying, right, there's going to be a $68 billion um, excess, we think, in, in the budget, uh, which means very wealthy people have done incredibly well uh, in California during the last couple of years. We also know our poverty has really grown. So when we think about how do we use some of that resource to give it back to the to the public, uh, it made sense to us to target it to those who needed it the most versus, you know, um, so we, we targeted under um, $250,000 and then really concentrated more of it on uh, those with even uh, more compounding issues. Um, and we're trying not to talk about it as like, for gas, right? We, we all understand anytime you go to the grocery store, uh, I will say some things I don't think we should we should play with. Like I do all the shopping in my house. My spouse went to the grocery store and she came back with some generic mayonnaise. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we can afford best foods, please. Even with, inflation, even with inflation. Whole Foods has inflation. that store brand. Like I, I'll cut somewhere else, but I, I want the best I food. thought Hellman's was the gold standard, but that, we digress. Oh, well, Hellman's, they're the same thing, depending on what side of the- We're going uh, down the mayo yeah. rabbit hole here. 
mayo rabbit hole. Right? So what did um, she also come home with? Just like a much more expensive grocery bill because she doesn't know. Right, because she doesn't know. Right, she doesn't know. She just buys random things that we don't need right now. <laughs> My husband we... does that. All right, really? let's focus back. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. So get off the so, mayo and back on. Uh, so the governor, as you, you know, you alluded to the gas price thing, and originally the governor was sort of focused on that. Wanted to give a rebate more to drivers, people that had registered vehicles uh, with some modifications. What are you hearing from the governor's office about this, this more broad-based plan? And uh, I mean, just yeah, and, have they, did they make the case for theirs, really? Yeah. And where, where, is this something where you meet in the middle or does he just come over to your side? Yeah, you might be surprised. He doesn't always check with us um, first <laughs> before before he announces his, <laughs> some of his, his plans. Um, or even so after. We, we knew he wanted to do something and, and we knew that we wanted to do something. And, um, and we just think our way is much more targeted. Um, impacts those who need it the most and and takes a much more holistic approach that it's not just about gas because not everybody drives um and and i have an electric car right so i it's but but we're all going to the grocery store we're all uh, paying for other, other things that we've just seen a, a complete rise in uh, and again we know the pandemic has been most difficult on those uh, who have the least and so that's where we thought the the emphasis should be all right well we'll keep following that um the Governor, obviously, within the next couple of weeks, is going to come out with his revised budget and the real things get down to real brass tacks. Real, right. But um, as we mentioned, this proposal for care courts had two hearings this week. You are uh, authoring the legislation as uh, along with Senator Tom Umberg um, to do this. Can you just explain to us in your words, like, what is care courts and how would it work? Oh, I'd love to. OK, so uh, people may or may not know we have. We have a, uh, a mental health system that is basically in, in w- when you just try to engage with the system and anybody right during the pandemic who's tried to get mental health help. We know mental health issues have gone up. It's difficult right now. We have somewhat of a workforce issue. Um, access is, is difficult. But for those who are um, the sickest, often living on the streets. And again, not everybody who has mental health issues is homeless and not everybody who's homeless has mental health issues. But there is that Venn diagram where those two things overlap for, for some folks. So Care Court offers a different on-ramp into the mental health system, uh, especially for those who are experiencing active psychoses. Um, our, our system right now, like the 5150, 5250, LPS, uh, Lanterman-Petrus uh, Short Act, is, um, is an acute medical model system. Um, the, the issues that a lot of people on the streets with these issues are facing is not acute. It is a chronic issue. And so this is a different pathway into the system. I like to think of it as a, a different on-ramp um, to be able to provide care for those. And again, we're, we're thinking about, there's about seven, between seven and 12,000 individuals for whom this, this may apply. Um, and, it, and so the care court is a different way in, right? A lot of the um, opponents will say, anytime you say a court, it's forced care. The reality is if, if folks don't get help, then they end up in jails, emergency rooms, state hospitals, in a conservatorship or jail or prison, right? Or that, dead. Or dead, or dead. Every mm-hmm. year people are dying on our streets, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one really compelling uh, psychiatrist, street doctor out of uh Los Angeles, she talks about people are dying with their rights on, right? You have rights, but you're, you're dying on the streets with them. So, so this is a, a different, to really engage with these folks. We know just through history that it takes about 40 tries to get somebody with really you know, persistent issues uh, to come in for care. So this program will have a judge and it'll have to be a specially trained judge. 
uh, think about like um, drug court or homeless court. The, these courts already exist. Collaborative courts, they're referred to uh, in all of our counties, most of our counties. So this would be somewhat like that, uh, but it then has a supporter, which will be, people have asked about that, um, somebody who will be able to go out, kind of monitor, kind of assist that person. They'll have a case manager. It'll have a public defender to collaboratively come up with a plan that that person will then agree to. Let me ask you about that, because just as you said that, I was thinking, you know, public defenders try to get you off, right? They try to keep you out of jail. So what is, is that a different role for a public defender? I mean, what is the role to, to, to convince the court that this person doesn't need to be you know, compelled into treatment? Well, because this is this is not a compulsion, right? There is no mandate to this, which, you know, I think some of my peers, especially across the aisle, would like it to be like, if you don't do this, then we're, we're taking you away. We're, that, that's not what this is. That's not what this is, because that then presents a lot of other legal complications. This is a much more collaborative process where you want the person to say yes, right? Yes to housing. So it's basically got management, case management, court management, uh, um, medication adherence and a housing plan. Those are the three components that we think are really going to provide that structure. Um, and, you know, then the question is, well, what if somebody doesn't comply? Well, there'll, there'll be follow-ups, but, the, but at, at no point, I want to make that clear because that's a, a lot of the activists are like, you know, you're going to compel people, you're going to lock them up. No, at no point through this process is somebody then compelled into a, a 5150 or, or into jail. If, if they don't comply and their behavior, you know, becomes such that they enter into the system at a different point, then then that's that, 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 but that's not the purview of the care. Court. And is just quickly and then I want to talk about the ability to provide this care because that's always been a challenge. But is that does that mean, though, that someone who might be facing a criminal charge could take this as an alternate path to potentially uh, not face those criminal charges? We haven't really discussed that in in depth there i mean there is an understanding that folks like this may have a record but if there's current pending charges that somebody needs to face uh, they could potentially then when they go back to court they could potentially say now i'm in care court and i'm i'm housed i'm stable i'm on my medications and we would imagine the judge would take that into consideration you over the years have authored many pieces of legislation to try to fix various problems with the mental health system. Uh, and there's a shortage of beds. There's a shortage of staff. Uh, you just alluded a moment ago to a special kind of judge who is, uh, you know, would need to be trained in these sorts of things. I mean, it, do, does the system as it exists now, can it even Candle cope this, yeah. with what you're describing? Um, we say yes, right? We say yes. I mean, we wouldn't be proposing it if we didn't think it, it was possible. Um, again, this is for this program, they're thinking of seven to 12,000 people who would fit the criteria. Now, these are not new people that we're going to fly in from another another state, right? These are folks currently in California who currently should be being served by a behavioral health agency. We, you know, people are saying, well, you're moving them to the front of the line. And I'll use Dr. Galley's words, well, would saying these people aren't in line at all, right? These people aren't going into the clinics. These people aren't appearing somewhere. They are living under bridges, they have been ostracized or, or, or uh, separated from their families through their, through their disease. Um, and so, it, it, so, so they, they will be elevated and people will say, well, that'll make us reprioritize a little bit, but we, have, we are spending like over $14 billion, another $2 billion this year. Um, 
there will be huge workforce issues. So at the end of the day, how many billions of dollars do we send to deal with, with the, the very visible issue that we have right. without asking our system to change and be able to adapt to provide the care that we're, we think we're funding? But as you point out, I mean, we still have massive issues. The Chronicle in San Francisco just did a really just devastating year-long investigation into the state of affairs at these single-room occupancy hotels where a lot of people end up when they're taken out of homelessness. Their case managers have 85 you know, people under them. I mean, I guess I just want – and we are spending a lot of money in San Francisco. So is this – like? In addition to your argument, the resources are there. Is part of this whole construct the idea that you kind of need to push counties into doing things more creatively or differently or just spending that money? It is. Um, this plan holds both the individual and our systems accountable. It hold, it's going to hold us accountable and it's going to hold our counties accountable, which is why they they you know they they are they are tentative in their uh, approach to this. Um, because there is the possibility of, of fines uh, going to the counties, right? But they say, well, there's not enough housing now. Well, with the amount of money we have sent, and again, there's, this is not going to be a, a huge population of people, you have to be able to get them in a bed. And whether that is in an SRO, whether that is in a tiny home, whether that is in a shelter, or even, again, for this population, one size does not fit all. We, we hear from a lot of families who potentially could have someone back in their home if they had support and there was going to be management, right? I mean, that's the thing right now. People have folks in their home, love them desperately, but can't have them there because they're out of control. Right. Their behavior is out of control. So to have management, to have resources, to have that person stabilized opens up a lot hmm. more possibilities than currently exist for this population. So this was an idea that the governor announced a couple months ago now. Um, and, you know, in the past, he's been criticized for not really going to bat for some of his legislation when push came to shove. What would you like to see him and his office, his administration do to help get this over the finish line in a, in a, in a form that, you know, you will find acceptable, that you think will really work and make a difference? Yeah, I, I mean, we have been working very closely with the administration, and and I will just give you know huge props to uh, to Dr. Mark Galley. We're very lucky to have him, and he comes with direct experience um, from Los Angeles and from a lot of street work he did there and homeless work he did there. So he really is. Um, I think he really is uh, invested in shepherding this. We had him as our our lead witness for both the hearings this week to be able to answer some of these these questions. Um, so we feel like the administration has really leaned in um, and, and hopefully we continue to have that support when the May revise comes out. I mean, we will need to see some of these funding issues resolved around uh, the judges, the DAs and the supporters. Um, we know that we need, you know, a lot more work on, on, on workforce. Um, but, but one of the points I made in, um, in committee this week is while we have an issue with workforce, part of it is burnout. Part of it is people feeling like they're knocking their heads against the wall, trying to help people. And the system provides barricades, not even, not even obstacles, barricades for them to be able to get help and resources for people. So have, actually having more pathways, we think, will maybe decrease some of the burnout that people are feeling uh, and hopelessness that not just, not just the you know, participants feel, but the staff that's trying to so desperately to help as well. 
Absolutely. All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we will continue talking with State Senator Susan Talamantes Eggman. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And today we are talking with State Senator Susan Eggman. She's a Democrat representing Stockton, California. And we want to talk about your life story. Um, I believe you chose Stockton uh, because it was relatively close to Turlock, where you grow up. Uh, Your family had an almond orchard there. Um, And you're a Democrat despite coming from a farm. So <laughs> I'm curious, just like, what was your childhood like? Um, and, and what did you kind of take away from that experience uh, with an agricultural family? Yeah, uh, I will say the, uh, the Turlock Eggmans are the only Democrats in the, uh, in the Eggman clan. <laughs> um, I, so I, and I was, I was born in the Bay Area. My, my, uh, the Eggmans have been in the country for generations, picking fruit or making do with whatever they have, wherever they go. Uh, and my, my dad was a beekeeper. So uh, we're like fourth generation beekeepers um, out of the Terrabella Porterville ways where my dad was from. Um, it's a little interesting story. He met my mom who's from Mexico. Uh, she had the first job out of high school as a telephone operator. And my dad was uh, working up in Vallejo at the time. He called it uh, pulling titties for a living. He was a, a dairy milker. Um, <laughs> And he wanted to call his brother on uh, on New Year's and say Happy New Year's. And it was an old, he had to plug into the phone and my mom was the operator and he didn't know the number. And she said, the telephone is not a toy and don't call back until you have it. So he called back uh, the next day and asked for that operator who bawled him out. Uh, and they started talking and they were married and uh, spent 50 years together. Before that my is mom died. very that great? sweet. Oh my very gosh. Nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But my mom was always a... Um, you know, she was smart. She could read and write. My dad, my dad struggled, uh, but he had, they had a produce market. They had a little fruit stand in Castro Valley, um, you know, get up and go to the market every single day at 3 a.m. He got the, the uh, contract for Castro Valley schools uh, to do the produce. Um, but his dream was to be a full-time beekeeper. And he always did it kind of on, on the part-time. My dad uh, cut Christmas trees. We had a Christmas tree lot. He picked pumpkins. We had a pumpkin lot. He made hard cider. We had a little thing in the back. Uh, and he did honey and bees. So uh, when I was 13, we moved to Turlock. Okay, we, so you spent most of your childhood in Castro Valley. I did. And then we moved to uh, Turlock when I was 13 um, and to be a full-time beekeeper. And it was a, a shock for a kid coming from uh, from the Bay Area. Uh, but it was good. So from my parents, I mean, I just really learned uh, you get out of life what you put in, right? Your word is your bond. You work hard. Um, you don't make commitments you can't keep. Um, my dad would say, you know, the, 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 the world's not fair. Don't expect it to be. You got to reach out, 
grab it by the balls and make sure you what you can. You got to be colorful. You got balls and titties <laughs> in here already. <laughs> yeah. I'm halfway is it too through. Much? Is it no, too much? I'm, I'm just wishing your dad was still around to come on a political <laughs> breakdown. Um, you, you, um, you mentioned, I think, your the first job uh, out of high school that your mom had. When you were in high school, you know, I, when I was in high school, I think I worked at a Dairy Queen. You know, people work retail. Yeah. You worked in a psychiatric facility. <laughs> Um, how did that come Red about flag. And, and why did you, like, what attracted you to that? Uh, it was easier than hoeing weeds around the trees. Have you ever extracted honey in 106 degrees weather? Spoken like a farmer's daughter. <laughs> um, I, I just always had a really uh, sincere interest in, in helping people and understanding, um, you know, psyche and understanding um, how people operate and how I could best help. And so I got a, yeah, I got a job uh, at, at the Crestwood Manor in Modesto, California. Um, and so had have been doing this uh, my life and then went to the military after, after that and then came back in and continued to work in mental health and substance abuse and healthcare. Did you, um, when did you come out to your family? Uh, and oh. was it when you were in the military? Oh, now because... we're going to be gay too. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I, that was fungible. <laughs> I came out, uh, I'll never forget. I got a tattoo when I was in the military. I didn't come out until I was in the military. And I remember I was, I want to tell my mom and it was hot and I didn't want to take my shirt off to see my tattoo. And, and I was like, well, am I going to tell you something? And she's like, Oh, Oh God, honey. Oh, so I said, you know, I got a tattoo. And she was just like, whoo, okay, well, that's cute. Uh, but a few years later, I, I told two. her the other. She's like, I know it, I know it, I know she it. She did. Well, you, I think yeah. if my math is right, you must have served in the military in the 1980s? 70s and 80s, yeah, yeah. 79 to 83. Okay, so that was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It so, was. And you picked that time to come out. Uh, what was yeah, that Yeah, like? to, to my, yes, yes. You know, I, I would, you know. Decisions aren't always, you know, the best, you know. Uh, but I met my I met my life partner there. So okay. Renee in, and the I military. in the military, in the military, yeah. in in uh, Maryland, and we're both Californians. She's from Oroville. I was from Turlock, uh, and so she was coming home with me. So I had to explain that. Yeah. How'd that go over? Um, it <laughs> it was good. My parents, God bless both their souls. They I never worried that uh, I would be disowned or unloved. I just worried that they would be. It would be hard for them. It would be, um, uh, they would be disappointed. Uh, but my, uh, there was a, a few of us who got out around the same time and we thought we'd take this big adventure and we took, a, got a van, went around the country. And then we were going to, you know, California is the promised land. I had someone from uh, Maryland, someone from uh, Alabama, someone from uh, New Mexico, and then us from California. So we're all going to get jobs in the medical field. And we were applying for jobs, Bay Area, San Jose, all over. Nobody called us. We ended up all five lesbians at my parents' house. <laughs> so they had to come around for, <laughs> yeah, for about six months. Yeah, with my little sister who just they taught her how to drive and everything. Yeah, so that's amazing. Uh, I'm, I am very blessed with the loving family that I have. Well, I want to turn back to you mentioned that, you know, you ended up back sort of in the healthcare world. You got a Ph.D. from Portland State University um, and you did research on the challenges of end of life care for Latinos as part of it was your dissertation, dissertation. Or thesis. Yeah. And I know your mom helped you with that. How did you get into that? And you later, of course, end up carrying a death with dignity bill here in California. But it's such a fascinating just area to be drawn to and not one that we deal with very well as Americans. 
totally. We are a death-defying culture. Um, and it is an issue. And people say, oh, I couldn't do that it's so hard. Well, I couldn't be a plumber, right? I, and I, it's because we, there's hard things for all of us. Um, <laughs> but we all die, right? We, we all die. And so it is, it is one of the universal experiences that all human beings encounter and, and have an experience with. And I just think um, we should invest more of our resources in understanding that better. So my, um, my mom was one of the first Spanish speaking hospice social or hospice volunteer in the Turlock area. And she did that after my godmother died. Um, and we, and I, uh, and that was the first person who I loved whose bedside I sat at as she died and provided her care. And so in, in honor to her, my mom then became a hospice volunteer. So I heard her stories um, about the work she was doing. And when I, when I, when I was in my, my graduate program and I had been working in substance abuse and insurance things were changing at that time. And I got invited to, you know, apply to be a hospice social worker. And I just, I just fell in love with it. I mean, I think with my background, it is easy for me to talk with people. It is easy for me to kind of, you know, come inside. And so just, you know, meeting with people, engaging with them, sitting around the kitchen table. Um, and, you know, people would say, oh, honey, you know, we don't, we don't need a social worker. We don't have those kinds of problems. And I always say, because you associate it with uh, child welfare. Mm. Um, you know, my role is defined by your needs. Mm. And, you know, and you may not need me right now, but let's start a relationship. And then so when you do need me, uh, we have that. So because a lot of it is not even with the, the patient. It's with the mm. family. It's with the, you know, resources. It's with dynamics. One of the interesting ones, a man told me once, oh, you're here to help me find my son. I haven't seen in 40 years. Mm. He had abandoned his family when he was a, a, a younger man. And indeed, I found this guy in like wow. Texas or somewhere. I don't remember. I, I found an article in the paper uh, about it a while ago. So those kinds of closures, those kinds of like providing peace for people as they as they leave uh, this world. Um, and then when I was in um, in Portland is when they passed the End of Life Option Care Act there. And so then I became very intrigued in studying about that and learning about that. And Well, I want to um, ask you about the, the bill you carried when you were you know in the legislature. And, and I think a version of it had, um, had died in the legislature, and then you brought it back, rewrote it, tweaked it. Um, and it was, of course, very controversial. Uh, the testimony on all sides, including from your colleagues, uh, members of the legislature, was very moving. Jerry Brown had a, you know, issued a signing statement when he ultimately signed it. Um, talk about that process. And, uh, you know, I know you're a practicing Catholic. Um, it brings up issues with the church, obviously. You know, what was that like for you? And, you know, what did you take from it? Um, what did I take from it? I took, I mean, I... Well, I took deepened relationships from it, right? I mean, I sat with so many, so many members. Uh, I listened to stories. I listened to tears. Um, I took away from it that we still have a lot of work to do on end of life uh, and people's fear around that. Um, it, it is a profound experience, much like birth, right? It's one of the only things that we are all going to experience. And so many people are scarred by... Um, by their, their experience with death. And oftentimes that's losing somebody they loved. And so you have all of that remorse, guilt, uh, regret, love, sorrow, all those emotions that, that are attached to your own experience. So it's very hard for people to kind of pull away from their own personal experience. Uh, I felt like a lot of times people thought if I, if I agree with this and that means that I wanted my person to die, mm -hmm. which is we're not saying that, right? We know everybody is going to die. Um, and there was some fear around, well, as soon as 
you know, if they get the diagnosis, they're going to take the drug and, then, and they could have longer. You know, every bit of research shows that most people are in hospice. Most people have tried years of, of treatments, but they want some some say over those those last few days, those last few hours, minutes. And I just think, well, why why shouldn't we? Right. And why should we kind of impose our own beliefs and values onto somebody else? Well, we only have about a minute left with you. Um, I know this has been really fun. I feel like you really get the vibe of our show, Senator. Um, <laughs> you know, you mentioned your very long-term partner, Renee, and you also have a daughter who we're guessing is in the eight to 10-year-old range. Is that? She's 13. Oh, oh my goodness. Maybe it was an old picture. Old picture. Might, maybe saw an old picture. Um, She's graduating from eighth grade. Oh, my oh, gosh. No. That's crazy. So what does she want to see you legislate on? Oh, like... Um, uh, lunches, probably free dress day. Um, <laughs> I did. I did go speak to her class, uh, and 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 one of the students asked me, like, "What do you think? What do you think would be the best bill that we you could pass in in the in in the United States?" And I'm like, "Well, I would pass a bill that we could all be a little bit more kind." Oh, that's lovely. All right, we're gonna leave, we'll it, leave it there. What a great place to leave Senator it. Senator Susan Eggman, <laughs> thank you so much for your time thank today. You. Anytime. Let's all be kinder. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. And hey, if you're in the Bay Area, we're just days away from our live event with San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. He's facing a recall attempt in June. He'll be talking with Scott and me live on stage at KQED May 3rd. Sign up for free at kqed.org slash live to attend, or I think you can watch it online. Yep, absolutely. For now, our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at M Lagos. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.